0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr. Susan Oystein, Historic Landscape Specialist from the University of Cambridge Institute of Continuing Education, will explore the archaeological evidence for the management of prehistoric pastures. Well, thank you very much for inviting me um, this evening. The topic that I've brought you today is the culmination of um, some research I've been taking over about the fi- last five to seven years. And um, so it, it, it's largely speaking a proposition. And um, so I'd be quite interested to have your comments on it. So this is going to be the plan of campaign for this evening, um, part one and part two. So I'm going to tell you the plan in two phases, because if I tell you it all now, you'll forget Okay, so I'm going to tell you part one, and then I'm going to tell you part two when we get to part two. And at the end of part two, there'll be some explanations, some brief, not very lengthy explanations, and then a conclusion. So that's roughly the direction of travel for the next 45 minutes. Okay, so what do I plan to do in part one? In part one, I want to put a proposition to you about what I think Britishness is, and then put a problem to you which is the problem that I intend to try to work through with you over the, over the remainder of, of this lecture. Okay, so that's where we're going. Okay so the proposition you know, um, you know I'm South African they told you that already. Okay so now I've lived here for um, about um, actually now just over 40 years quite a long time but I'm afraid you know, although I'm very assimilated, I'm not utterly assimilated. Um, I've done my best, I've done the anthropology, I married a British man, otherwise perfect, but British. <laughs> so nobody can say I haven't done my research. I, it is always, you know, in, as, an, as a foreigner, as it were, an immigrant, I've always, we always ask ourselves, you know, what is it to be British? In, 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 in my exposition, you have to remember that I was brought up in apartheid South Africa. So that is, I was brought up in a white patriarchy, a society run by white men. So it's patriarchy colored by ethnicity, as you might say. <laughs> when, the, when the man said jump, everybody jumped. Okay. So now that is not the way that you do things in England. It has been a steep learning curve for me. So this is what I think Britishness is. It's my proposition. In Britain, there are a number of... um, In in organisations and in relation to physical resources, these things are shared between people. So that, for example, I work in a university. If I have an amazing idea for a project, I go to my boss, I have an amazing idea for a project, and she says... You know, that is a very good idea. I think we should do that. Have you spoken to so-and-so? And I think, really? I have to speak to so-and-so. I know so-and-so is very nice, but somebody who not nat- whose natural instinct is to say no. If I go and speak to so-and-so, by the time I get to the end of that conversation, the project will no longer exist. But the university is a common resource shared between a number of stakeholders. It's like a village green or a village common. So, there's the University of Cambridge. It's a community owned by its scholars. That is the University of Cambridge. We're not run by a management board. The university is owned by the community of scholars in the same way that the village community at Helm, I think it's Helmton in Yorkshire, owns its village green and they decide how it's going to be managed. So there are common resources owned by a limited number of stakeholders. Not everybody can decide what goes on in my university. Not everybody can decide what goes on on that village green. Every time there's a decision, all the stakeholders must be consulted now, that is an essential part of Britishness. If something happens in your parish, they want to make a wind farm, they want to build in the house next door to you, they want to drive a motorway through the middle of your village or your town. You all feel you have a right to be consulted. You're all stakeholders in that community. So, for example, there's a parish council so I'm somewhere in the Forest of Dean. and no, it's in Sussex somewhere. Um, there's a um, parish council All of those people must be consulted before anything can happen, before any decisions can be made in that parish. And when there were changes being proposed to the National Health Service over the past two years, everybody in the country is a stakeholder in the national health. Everybody with a right of domicile in Britain is a stakeholder in the National Health Service. And every single one of those people felt that they had a right to be consulted about changes that were being proposed to the National Health So all the stakeholders must be consulted. Decision-making is by consensus. Now, as a South African, this is the one I have found the hardest, because I'm used to, the man says jump. If I say jump, I expect people to jump. No, it's got to be done by consensus. So here we have the Synod of the Church of England, and that consensual principle, you can see, is exemplified in the layout of the room. That's not a hierarchical room, except in the sense, I suppose, of distance from the centre, but it's about the equality of everybody's voice and everybody having the right to be heard. The importance of custom and practice. This is very important in England. Quite often there are things um, which, you know, in discussions being made about decisions, somebody will come and say, do you know, I can remember we tried this in and um, we had this big discussion, and at that time there was a problem about X. Or we tried that, and we had a difficulty in relation to this, so the next time we must do something different. And quite often that past experience will not be written down anywhere. It will be embodied in the people in the room. But it's very important. You know, as soon as that voice comes up, then everybody knows you have to take that into account because it affects the consensual practice. Nobody will agree. You won't get 100% agreement if the problems of the past that are remembered are not um, are not also addressed. So there's custom and practice in an oral tradition. And an insistence on the moral economy which is not taking more than your fair share. Now, a very straightforward example of that is burying. Although actually, to be truthful, burying is not a perfect example because berries by the side of the road belong to everybody, not just to some people. But... There is this rule about blackberrying and picking sloes and so on that you shouldn't pick more than you need in order that other people can also have some. So, if you went out picking sloes and you picked what you needed and then you thought, damn it all, I don't see why anybody else should be making sloe gin this year, and you picked all the other sloes and threw them away, then everybody would be very cross because then you'd have trans- transgressed the idea of the moral economy that there should be a fair. Uh, distribution of resources. And the same, the same principle applies, for example, um, in this whole deb- debate about youth unemployment and bank bonuses. This is about taking more than one's fair share. That's the principle that's at stake. And I'm not, you know, it doesn't matter which side of the argument you're on. What's important is that the argument happens and that it's about fair shares. So this seems to me to define what it is to be British. And the interesting thing then that I began to think about was that those are exactly the same structures that are used in managing commons. They're limited resources. Not everybody is allowed to graze their cattle on a common. Um, Everybody who does graze their cattle or their sheep, if it's a a sheep common, um, must be consulted if there are going to be changes made to the regulations um, everybody must agree, so there's decision-making back in census. Largely speaking, the bylaws on Commons tend not to be written down or not in any detail. I mean, people write, hate writing minutes. I hate writing minutes too. My minutes go, they came, they discussed, they left. <laughs> but then we all remember what actually was discussed. We say, oh yes, when last time we agreed, and so then that oral tradition of custom and practice kicks in. And then everybody, nobody should have have more cattle on the common than they're entitled to because that way everybody's cattle can graze and do well. What you don't want is for one person to put 200 cattle on so that the people with only two or three of their cattle don't prosper on the common. It's about the fair distribution of resources. So they came from common rights. So that was the, that's my proposition. And there's mentioned Hampton Common in Gloucestershire, which many of you no doubt know, um, there's a, um, it's certainly there by the Iron Age. This is an Iron Age ditch here. Here's the common, and the cattle still graze there as they have grazed for at least the last two thousand years. People haven't lived on that common for at least two, two two and a half thousand years. So, why do common rights work like that? They work like that. Here's an example. This is a, a field of pasture which is divided up, these different things just mean different owners, the different sorts of shading, but it's for pasture, and that's a field of arable. The pasture field, you can wander from one side to the other. The arable field, you can wander from one side to the other, even though they're divided between a number of owners. So because if you put your cattle here, and it wandered onto that man's strip, that's fine. Your cattle can wander from there to there. But if your cattle wander beyond that boundary into the arable field and eat the crops, then everybody is going to be very upset. So you need all to agree that there must be a boundary around the field and then you have to share out the work equally, that all the people who can graze their cattle, they must all contribute to keeping that boundary in place. So everybody gets you know, a quarter or a half or whatever, however many stakeholders there are, they divide and you get that proportion of the boundary. So you all... Have to preserve it, but then on the other hand, if they say there were five five people with rights to graze, and one of them was a really crusty person, and he knew that they were going to be discussing on Thursday, and he didn't want to be part of it, he says, "I'm not coming." And then they make a decision, and then he says, "I'm sorry, I wasn't there. I didn't agree. I'm not going along with it." And then the whole system is completely thrown into disarray. So the expectation is that everybody must come. And everybody must participate in the decision. And the decision is made by consensus. And if you don't do it like that, then you have to make the rules every single time from scratch. And it's massively long-winded. If you've ever been to a parish council meeting, it's hell. You would have to do that every single time from the very beginning. Who is entitled to come? When may they come? What, um, what are their duties in relation to it? When, on what exact date can they come? How many animals can they put on? And so you'd have to start that from the very beginning, every single meeting. It would be tedious beyond words. So you, you establish the general principles and then you make sure everybody comes and everybody participates in the decision. Not written down, because by and large these are non-literate, so it's oral, an oral tradition. And once more the system of fair play comes into account. So these are, that's why it works like that. And it works like that whether you're working with pasture or whether you're working with arable. The principles are the same. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that when you look at the history of common rights in England, and I did look at a lot... They say you ask how old are they, and they say well they're very old. So okay, but how old? Oh no, they're ancient. So really ancient? Yes. Well, what exactly do you mean by ancient? Well, you know they're just very, 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 very old. And then when you pin them to the points, they say oh well um, the earliest Anglo Saxons. Okay, so why do you think it's the earliest Anglo Saxons? Well, we think it's the earliest Anglo-Saxons because in the laws of King Ina of Wessex, which go back to about 670, there is this clause which more or less says here is some common land which is shared between a number of people. It might be pasture, it might be arable, and we all must maintain the boundary around it for obvious reasons. And if you don't, then the person who didn't might maintain it is liable to damages to the person whose property has been damaged by stray animals. So it's a very simple proposition. But the historians, you see, for the historians, there is nothing before history. And history only begins with the written document. So if the written document is first 670, it just stands to reason, from the historian's point of view, that that was the first time the law was promulgated. Because there's no earlier evidence But they don't take into account what happened before there was writing. The archaeologists, archaeologists, not interested in documents. If it's not a little piece of pot in the ground, not interested. So the trouble is that when people live, you know, you and me, we go home, we make things, we live, we throw stuff away, we eat, we have clothes. When we make an impact on the environment with every breath we take... We're not saying to ourselves, "Oh yes, well now I must remember that this is a little piece of psychological evidence, a little bit of sociological evidence, a little bit of archaeological evidence, a little bit of historical evidence. People live. And so this narrow view of when common rights began is fundamentally flawed because it doesn't take into account that not everybody lives in in a world in which writing is common. So... The trouble with that proposition that it starts with the, um, with the early anglo saxons is so that you find common rights over arable right the way across England. Can okay? You see, that's all, all the bits where there are any sort of orange is where there are open fields under common rights. And um, the different colours are not about intensity of the rights but about different scholars who've mapped them. And there's nothing in Cornwall and nothing in Wales because... They haven't been mapped, but they were they have been found, and so actually the whole of that map should be orange. But obviously, being a reputable scholar, I haven't done it. So they're absolutely everywhere. And why is that a problem with the Anglo-Saxons? The reason is that if you look at the early the distribution of early Anglo-Saxon evidence, it mostly falls within that red circle. So all the black dots are where there is some Anglo evidence of Anglo-Saxon activity in the 5th century, pretty well. That's in the late 400s after the Romans left. And the green is just um, place names, so you're not really interested in those. But the black bit, that's the bit that we're really interested in. So you can see that if the Anglo-Saxons did introduce common rights, they didn't introduce it everywhere they were. And somebody else must have done it somewhere else. And when you have a look at the early Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, Some are Saxon, so they're kingdoms. So here are the Saxon kingdoms. I think that might be, no, one more. Saxon kingdoms. And the British kingdoms. So you can see that by 800 AD, Britain is divided culturally between Saxon and Britain. It's divided administratively between a multiplicity of kingdoms and yet open fields are found across the whole country. This cannot be about the Anglo-Saxons. There must be something else at work. So I thought, okay, well, you know, I just work in continuing education. I can ask any old question I like. I'm going to say to myself, well, if I was going to be looking for common rights before the Anglo-Saxons, how would I do it? So that's what I did. There's this um, French historian called Fernand Brodal, and he says, if you want to know what is new about a period, you have to know about what happened before. Because otherwise, you won't know whether what you're looking at is actually new or whether it's inherited from the past and unchanged, or whether it's inherited from the past and amended in your period, or whether it's a genuine innovation. Oh, Okay. I shall go to the archaeology. So I started having a look at the archaeology, and, um, I mean, I, you know, my training's actually in archaeology, so it wasn't a great surprise. I mean, the archaeologists basically say, you read the reports, they say, uh, oh, well, we have these empty zones, they say. Empty zones, see, no fields and farms. The yellow bit is the empty zone. Um, bare of settlement, although quite often barrows and what they might call ritual monuments. And when you read the reports, they say, um, clearly the common pasture of the community, they say. And now, as I was telling you about this trench, they go on. So they don't say to themselves, well, how would it actually work? If that was the common pasture of the community, do they actually mean common rights? How does it actually work in practice? So that was my question. How does it actually work in practice? And I did that through... Four, sorry. Four, four questions. Um, were there territorial rights? Because obviously, rights of common are limited to ex- exclusive groups. If I've got a right of common here and you've got a right of common there, you know, I've got a right to, a pro- it's a property right. You can't come on my common and I can't come on yours without each other's permission. So we need to know that there were territorial rights. Was access to pasture equitably arranged? That is, was once you got to the pasture, was it divided up between households? That's mine and that's yours. Or did we all go and share together? Were animals pastured collectively? Or did each household have its own little herd? And then is there any evidence for custom and practice within an oral tradition? So those are my four questions. So that's what I'm going to do next. That's part two. Okay, so the next bit is a kind of quick exposition, a quick exploration of how I address these questions. Territorial rights. Well, clearly territorial rights existed in prehistory. We actually basically all know that. These are Neolithic um, causewayed enclosures. Um, they're, they're not defensive, they're, they're ditches which have got causeways across them, hence the name. Archaeologists are not imaginative when it comes to names. Um, and so um, it may be that you know, these are ways of filtering the most important people here, the slightly less important people there, the sort of middling, and the completely unimportant out the outside. It could be that sort of thing, but it's not a defensive. And they tend to be found on high ground, Pasture. So here, for example, is the Isle of Sheppey in Kent. And um, there are two of these Causeway enclosures back to back. And the archaeologists suggest that the herds and flocks came from one direction for the one, which is the brown, and from the other direction to the other. So there were these two groups, each of which had rights of pasture on the Isle of Sheppey in the Neolithic, which is between about 4000 and 2000 BC. So clearly, there are territorial rights. Um, these are unless, This is this is a French photograph of transhumans in the Pyrenees. So I'm trying to persuade my husband now um, that this is what we need to do. We need to follow the sheep up the Pyrenees, and that'd be amazing. Anyway, this is a long-term project of mine to do the persuasion. The thing is about transhumans. It means sending your flocks quite a distance or your herds to pasture somewhere else. You need to know. That when your herds leave your property, they will be safe until they get to where they're going. Because clearly if they're going to be somebody else going, oh, that's a nice herd of cow I might have those cattle. You know, then you're lost. So you need to have the rights of protection all the way there. And when you get there, you need to know that your animals can graze. Because if you get there and they go, oh, no, sorry, chums, we've changed the rules. You better go back. Your animals would be dead before they got home because they would not have had a chance to graze. So as soon as you've got transhumans, then you have got territorial rights sometimes over quite long distances. And there's evidence of um, transhumans in the Neolithic. So, for example, people from all over Dorset, from um, Hampshire, from Wiltshire, used to take their animals onto Salisbury Plain to graze them in the Neolithic. In the Bronze Age, that's between about 2000 BC and 800 BC, there are people taking their cattle from the Pennines down to the Yorkshire Wolds. To graze. So there must have been territorial rights. And here in Dartmoor, exactly the same, same thing. There are these very long boundaries called reeves. And here you, I can see they're black, the back lines. Each of these belongs to a, 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 an extended family. And then they all have the right to pasture on Dartmoor. We can see. So, yes, we know there were territorial rights in prehistory. So the first condition is Satisfied. Did they all have equitable access to pasture? Could everybody go to pasture within a community? Or or did the pasture just belong to some people? Well, here in Yorkshire, I could show you endless examples, but clearly you have not got all there. So I haven't got you all loads, but still. The colored in bit is the pasture. Here are the fields and the farms in Iron Age Yorkshire. So from about 800 BC until about, mm, you know, 043 AD, when, when the Roman conquest happened. If you look at the entrances to these bits of pasture, you can see they're quite wide. Now, if, there, if, there was, if, if it was just my pasture and only my cattle were allowed on, I would have a gate. And I would make sure that the gate was only open when my cattle came through, but that when you brought your cattle, I'd say, sorry, private pasture. You have to go home. And the, you could not get your cattle through because the gate would be closed. And there is absolutely no evidence of that here. These, this appears to be open access onto the pasture. Here again, this is also on the Yorkshire World, it just happens this is where the best diagrams are. But there's nothing here to suggest a gate onto that area of pasture. And over here, again, the, the pasture's divided up because you have to ma- manage pasture in that way. But, you know, once you get to the gate, everybody can go through. This is not a, a, a privately owned bit of pasture. And you can see the same thing in Hampshire in the Roman period. This is Professor Cunliffe's work. The red dots are Roman farms. The, these crossworky things are their fields. And there's the pasture colored in. Everybody in Charlton could get onto that pasture. It's not limited to just some people. Everybody can get their animals on there. But that doesn't mean that they were necessarily grazing in a single herd. They might, you know, we could each have got our own cow herd, our own cows, put them up, and then made sure that, you know, that there were these discrete groups of animals. Did that happen? Well, I don't, don't, obviously, I don't know but I don't think so, and I'll tell you why I don't think so. And there's two two reasons. The first is that um, when one looks um, on these areas of pasture, there are stock enclosures. And so for example, these are examples, it's an example from Salisbury Plain. They're relatively small and relatively contained. So that's one you know one piece of evidence about them. This is Shaw Moor on Dartmoor, one small um, a pound the few houses in it, and people come up here in the spring, stay until the autumn, do a little bit of dairying, do a bit of weaving, and look after the animals on Dartmoor around. Now, so it's Sean Moore. the thing is that when you look at the distribution of these stock enclosures, if we each have our own cattle in separate herds up on the common, then we each need our own stock enclosure. One for your cow herd, one for my one cow herd, one for somebody else's, and so on. But when you look at the distributions, there are far fewer of the stock enclosures which are green than there are farms which are in red. And in these areas which are encircled, there are so many farms. I have just, you know, lost patience actually, and just, you know, I've not coloured them in. But there's, there are many, many more of these downland farms than there are the stock enclosures on the higher pasture. And that suggests to me that the, herds were, the animals were put into a collective herd, into a communal herd, one or two shepherds or, or cow herds who took them up onto the pasture and looked after them um, over the summer months. There is other evidence to support this conclusion. Oh, Sorry, this is just a lovely little, it's called a banjo enclosure. Um, I think it's in Dorset. Um, here's Stizan Gussager. So here, that's the stock enclosure there, and then you can drive the animals in this kind of funnel. So here, there's only one or two animals abreast. You can manage them quite easily. It's lovely, isn't it, for horse herding wild horses in the Iron Age. Oh, amazing. Anyway, so... This is about uh, annual roundups of very, very large numbers of animals. Now, the scale of these two things is about the same. The one on the right is believed to have been able to hold up to 2,000 sheep. 2,000 sheep at any one time in the Bronze Age between about 2,800 BC. These are at the same scale. The one on the left is also for sheep. And they seem to be, the one on both of them, are for sorting your sheep after they've been rounded up. You want to make a distinction between the rams which go out. You want your ewes in one place. You want your lambs in another. You want your um, wool sheep in one place. You want those who aren't there anymore to go out into the field. You want your breeding ewes. You divide them up. And you can see exactly the same thing happening here. You collect them all in that big pen, and then you sort them out. (laughs) Cool. These are at the same scale. If that one could take 2,000 sheep, this could take at least 2,000, maybe 4,000. It's also on chalk downs. It's in Hampshire, also for sheep rearing, and it's also Iron Age. 800 BC. These are huge, huge, huge herds, much bigger than it is very likely that one household will have managed. You're looking at a communal herd here. I mean, I can't be sure, but I think. So, were they managed under common rights? Well, what do we know? We know that there were enforceable rights of access, that herding was collective, and there must have been principles of equitable access. We've seen that everybody has equal access onto the, onto the, um, the pastures. So, identifiable right holders. Everybody will have had to have been consulted because the system would not work otherwise. Decision-making by consensus, because it wouldn't work otherwise, and there must have been principles of a moral economy, that there must have been equal shares, because otherwise how the system, again, would not have worked if, some, if it had not been fair. If so, at least some pastures must have been subject to rights of common. And that leaves one criterion outstanding, which is about custom and practice within an oral tradition, can we see this in the archaeology? Well, actually, I think we can. Custom and practice in an oral tradition, this is a stone row on Dartmoor. Um, there's a very, very good archaeologist in Cornwall called Peter Herring who's come up with a very nice idea to explain stone rows. He says that um, each season, as in each spring, when each community brought its animals into the collective herd up on Dartmoor, They all came by particular routes. And the point of the particular route was that when you got to your bit of grazing, there was a moment of recognition. Now, the best way I can describe this to you is when you come home, if you've been on a journey, you've been away on holiday, been away for a few weeks, and you come home to your own landscape, there is a point at which it just hits your heart that you're home. So now, for example, when I go to South Africa... Um, I took my husband out there recently. We went to a beach where I used to go when I was little. I was brought, basically brought up on that beach. I hadn't been there for 30 years. And all you see along the coast is one sand dune after the no- another. Honestly, you know, it just looks like nothing on earth. But I can tell you which is my sand dune. I don't know how I can, but I can tell you it is that sand dune. And I was right, because that is the moment for my heart. So now here, these people in Dartmoor, there is the moment of their heart when they get onto Dartmoor and they see their bit. And that is how they train one generation after the next to know where to take their cattle or their sheep up onto the pasture. Custom and practice in an oral tradition it's not written down in a bottle, buried in a Neolithic site, and hauled out each year for the people to read, oh, we're up that way. No, it's the father tells the son, tells the grandson, and so, and so over the generations, they bring them up here and you can see exactly the same process in beating the bounds. Whether or not it's actually true that the children were beaten or whether it was simply the trees or the, mo- or the, or the particular bits that were beaten, but that is how the tradition is perpetuated. More evidence for custom and practice. This is Hambledon Hill in Dorset. and um, There are Neolithic causewayed enclosures at the top, The ditches of those enclosures were dug and re-dug over a period of three or four hundred years. Sometimes they were re-dug when the original ditches would have been invisible to anybody looking from the ground, just a dimple in the grass, and it's not a golf course out there. It's rough ground. It must have been that somebody knew where those ditches were, custom and practice in an oral tradition and then finally they seem to be having had they seem to have had seasonal feasting on these bits of high ground so this is harrow hill in sussex a little stock enclosure of the sort you've already seen 1000 skulls of cattle how many barbecues could you have <laughs> with a thousand cattle how many what a lot eh hey? that is a feast and here uh, in Chisenbury, in Wiltshire, again, a midden there, a huge rubbish mound, six acres, six acres of rubbish because they have this wild series of parties. They do the roundups, their wives come up, they do the marrying, they, they settle the disputes, they see family they haven't seen for a long time, they do whatever passed for you know having a religious service. In that period, all the things that community rural communities do when they get together, they have, you know, horse riding competitions, rolling the cheese, bareback riding, pole vaulting, I don't know, stuff. And throughout it they're feasting, because if you're feasting with a man one day and getting drunk with him and marrying your daughter to him, the next day, when it turns out that his herdsman accidentally killed one of your cattle or that one of your cows has accidentally on purpose or whether by a true accident ended up in his herd, it's harder to have a row with him about it because you were his friend last night. So there are these massive episodes of feastings, which seem to be around the time of the annual roundup. And the feasting is important because they put the rubbish in the same place each year. They don't spread it about and go, Oh, we can't have you know an unsightly rubbish heap. They have yeah, that's our rubbish heap. Wow, what a fabulous amount of feasting that was. Didn't we have a good party? Oh we're gonna have such a good one next year, it's be even better next year. I thought of this great idea. Yeah. So seasonal feasting. So yes, there is widespread evidence on pasture for oral custom and practice perpetuated in an oral tradition throughout prehistory. That is, all the tests for the practice of common rights are met. So they were traditional long before the Anglo-Saxons ever arrived in England. Why should they be so long-lasting? Just two quick slides. One is that these are very flexible rules. As long as we know that the rights are only limited to some people, then we can amend the rules. This is a very English thing to do. We're only going to let people in the kin group in. Okay, that's fine. And so they're, no, you can't come in, you're not kin. You know, It's only uncles and aunts and grandparents and children and stuff like that. You can't come in. And then somebody has a very, very special friend. And um, they say, well, um, how do we know that somebody's kin? Because this person isn't a blood relation. And, they oh, you know, um, there is this rule that if you give somebody his first sword or you give him his first haircut, then he counts as kin. So then they can bend the rules to include them if they wish. So they're very flexible, they're easily adaptable, but because they have to be agreed by consensus, they're very slow to change. It's incremental change, always. Never revolutionary. So, for example, there's this wonderful example of Adam of Tid. He's asked, how does he know where the boundaries were? And he's, he's actually he had known these bounds for 40 years and more, and there were no other than these. So now there's two ways of looking at this statement. One is... That when Adam of Tid knew that, given this dispute, he was going to be called into court and told to, you know, asked where how he could say where the boundaries were, that he sequestered himself in his house and didn't talk to anybody for six weeks. That's option A. Option B is Adam of Tid was down the pub every single day for those six weeks, discussing with the other people in the village, young and old. Where do you think those boundaries go? Well, you know, it goes from that tree to this ditch to that ditch. You know that little bit of ground? We've always quite liked it. It's always been very useful for our cat. What if we just say that our boundary also includes that? Well, of course, you know, it has always included that, they say, even though they know jolly well it never did. So they, you can make up the rules as you go along, but because you say it is custom and practice then it is custom and practice. So the rules are very flexible, and they're flex- overtly flexible, and they're implicitly flexible. So that's partly, I think, why they persist. And they partly persist, I think, because that expectation of how communal resources are to be managed is not something that is taught in school. They didn't take all the prehistoric children, put them down go, right, today's lesson is on common rights. You've got to agree things by consensus. Everyone's going to turn up and make decisions. You've all got a right to be, you know, to be consulted. And don't forget the moral economy. They didn't do that. They just watched how things were done. And a very good example of this, which is the um, anthropologist called Habitus, a very good example is this thing about queuing. Okay? So nobody takes you aside when you're a child and goes, this is the right way to queue. They say, come with me, children. We are going to queue. Oh, have you seen that person queue jumping? And so it's an informal way of learning. So for some cultures, it's very important. Curing is about when you arrive at the gate. The person who arrives first has a greater right to be through than the person who comes tenth. In other societies, it's not about who arrives when at the gate. It's being at the gate. If you're at the gate, you've got the right to go through. And we all get very, very upset if it's not done our way, but actually that upsetness is because we've got—I wouldn't say that it's an irrational attitude to queuing, but it's—it's a—it's—it's a—it's um, a—it's not, not an intellectual approach. It's something we've learned about what is right when we were children, which we've never questioned because that's just the way that it's done. And I think that that is how common right the, the, these values underpinning common rights are perpetuated from one generation to another. We don't teach people, we do it because that's how we are, how you are. So, for example, we have common rights in pasture. All those values we've seen work very well on commons. But you see it also in the Houses of Parliament. It's a limited resource shared between MPs. They all must be consulted. Decision-making is largely by consensus Custom and practice, wildly important, and everybody has got a right to speak. It's about a moral economy. This jumble sale, exactly the same. These three ladies, they've got the cake stall. If they'd gone down in the planning and the one had said to the other two, well, um, you, do the, you, know, you do the chocolate cake and you do the cupcakes and I'll make the fruit cake. I think all well, the other two would have gone home and said, you know what, she can do that on her own. <laughs> They all sat down in 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 somebody's kitchen and they said, you know, what worked really well last year? Custom and practice in an oral tradition. And somebody said, you know, your cupcakes went down an absolute bomb this year. Do you think you might be willing to do it again if you're not too bored with cupcakes? No, I'll make the cupcakes. Oh, well, in that case, you know, my chocolate cake really did go down quite well, so I think I'll make a chocolate cake and so on. So they they discuss together. Everybody's voice is heard. They agree by consensus what is going to be done. And then the cake stall goes like a dream. So it's an informal example. They only come together once a year to do this cake stall the rest of the time. They're busy and they never see each other, but they come once a year and they know how to do it. Parliament, of course, every day, well, mostly. And then finally, I'm particularly interested in this example. This is Occupy London. Now, Occupy London is very interesting to me because if you look at the rules for the General Assembly, which you can find on the internet, it says Everybody's right, everybody has a right to be heard and decisions are by consensus. And, of course, the whole point of Occupy London is about the moral economy. So now, if you look at those people, I mean, I hope you will not mind my saying that most of them are quite a lot younger than us. Most of us. These are young people Nobody said to them, oh, right, well, you want to run an anti-establishment organisation. This is the way that it's done in England. You have to have right of participation, consensus, and so on. They knew, in their hearts, they already knew how to do it because it seems to me that those are the values of Britishness. And if those are the values of Britishness, well, actually, there's quite a lot worse values you could have, actually. You could say jump and you don't do that here and seems pretty good actually an enduring tradition hurrah, that's my research <laughs>